This podcast uses adult language. Listener discretion is advised. This is Kevin. And this is Elizabeth. And this is the Listen 83 podcast. Welcome back, Elizabeth. Good to see you, Kevin. Good to see you too. And we have an interesting topic today. What are we talking about? Yeah, we are going to talk about polyamory or more specifically polygamy in several different religions today. And we wanted to add a little disclaimer that we are not experts on all of these religions, most of these religions that we're going to discuss today, but that we've done research into these topics. And we are certainly open to feedback from people who are more knowledgeable on these specific paths, in re- especially in regards to polyamory and polygamy, but that we are not the end-all be-all on information on these topics. So this might be our first topic where we're touching on polygamy and plural marriage, and uh, as well as like unethical non-monogamy, like forced non-monogamy in some cases. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I think it's important and interesting topics and definitely related to polyamory or multiple consensual relationships for sure. So we're going to talk about it today. So where are we kicking off this with? Well, let's start with Islam. I lived in the Middle East when I was younger for a year and a half and was a very interesting time. I learned a lot. And one of the things that I learned during that time was that it is allowed per the Quran for Muslims to have up to four wives or Muslim men. And the main stipulation for that is the requirement that he treat them all equally, like exactly equally. So the same like financial support, the same if they each have their own house, which they often did in bigger families, then they were to be like the same size of house, the same same treatment like across the board. So I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. And actually, the school that I went to was on a compound of five buildings, a big one and four slightly smaller ones. And the four, it had belonged previously to a man and his four wives. So I literally lived in a compound that was originally polygamous. <laughs> and I think that the the fairness really appeals to me in that regard. Although, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong with having hierarchical relationships if you choose to do that. But I do like the idea that Islam specifically states that they need to be fair and treat all their wives equally. A lot of the reason for this type of polygamy was theorized to be that a lot of men were dying in battles or war and in general. And so they needed these these women to be taken care of and their children. So they were like, well, then it makes sense for a man to be able to marry multiple women so he can take care of them. So again, kind of like the fairness aspect. I didn't personally meet any Muslim families there who had practiced, who were practicing polygamy. It's sort of fallen out of fashion in recent times. It's less common, as I understand, in Islam overall than it used to be. But Islam has a long and interesting history that listeners should feel free to look into if they want. And basically, it's in their original holy text that you can have up to four wives. But of course, the women can only have one husband. So most of the religions we're going to talk about today are balanced in that way or unbalanced, shall we say? (laughs) Yeah. 
And uh, let's look back a little bit and maybe go over some of the terminology we're going to be using today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so polygamy is a type of plural marriage, which is just an allowance for marriage between multiple people. And in a legal sense, in the U.S., for example, where Elizabeth and I are now, it is illegal to have multiple legal spouses, although there are practices among individuals of different religions, as well as practices of ethical non-monogamous folks to have multiple marriages that are not legally recognized. They may be even secret. That's true. I guess it's considered bigamy if you have two or more spouses that you try to marry, like in different states or something. Although I don't see how you wouldn't be able, wouldn't get caught these days with the way the legal system is set up. But yep, totally illegal here. But I know plenty of people who have multiple marriages that are official in every way except legal. Mm -hmm. So they may have a full wedding ceremony and call both of them their spouses, etc. And in polygamy, you have polyandry and polygyny. Polyandry is the ability to have multiple husbands, whereas polygyny is having multiple wives. Yep. And speaking of polyandry, I have watched a couple documentaries recently on certain small towns or villages in like India and Nepal and China where they traditionally practice polyandry. So the woman has multiple husbands, but it seems to be in isolated cases, at least these days. So that was almost not worth a whole section because it is much more rare, I feel like, than the other way around. Yep. And if you're not familiar with polyamory, what me and Elizabeth practice, that's just the ability to have multiple loving relationships. Yep. And usually there's not a gender restriction on there unless it's one penis policy, which we have uh, an episode on, I believe. Yeah, it's a part of the episode two on unicorns. So uh, you were saying that this was common or at least something that was present in the Quran. Uh, what other religious institutions or, you know, how else does polygamy show up in other religions? Mormonism is very interesting. It has a long, complicated history of changes regarding the Church of the Latter-day Saints' opinion on or stance on multiple marriages. But there was certainly a time where it was definitely accepted and even considered to be part of being extra holy and getting into heaven in like an extra better way. Again, not an expert, but this is what I'm understanding. And actually, I did a lot of research into Brigham Young, who was very important and he was considered the most famous polygamist of the Latter-day Saints movement probably altogether. He had a total of 55 wives and the age at which he married them ranged wildly from 15 to 65. And what I found most interesting was I had always assumed that in Mormonism women were not allowed to have multiple husbands but I learned that six of his wives actually did have other husbands. And that surprised me. So I was like, okay, I learned something new. That's cool. So in a religious setting, it's always going to be specific regarding why multiple marriages are allowed. Usually, like in the Quran, it's about charity mostly and taking care of people, which I think is cool. And in Mormonism, it's about getting that extra level of being closer to God or the divine image. And so the traditions or the rules for each of these are going to vary, of course. But I just thought it was really interesting that six of his wives and divorce apparently 
was fairly accepted, at least during this time as well. Six of his wives were divorced and he ended up divorcing, I think, 10 of them. Yes, he ended up divorcing 10. So. And what time period is this roughly? Oh, that's a great question. When Brigham Young was around and uh, doing plural marriage. Yeah, Brigham Young was alive from 1801 to 1877. Okay. Yeah. And I don't believe that the Church of the Latter-day Saints approves officially of multiple marriages anymore, but I know that they are practiced in some areas anyway. But there are obviously a lot of different like divisions of different religions altogether. I personally grew up Baptist, Christian Baptist, Southern Baptist, and I always understood monogamy as being the only one true way because in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about how really sex is a sin or not a sin, but like a sinful act, not a sin altogether, but like a temptation. And if you're weak enough <laughs> to, to uh, fall into that pit, I guess, then you should get married because that's the most, you know, moral way in that regard in Christianity to handle it. But he definitely seemed to state that only one marriage at a time, you know, and only one marriage forever. However, I did some research and there are about 40 different instances in the Old Testament of God giving his beloved and favorite followers multiple wives, you know, approving them directly, like often because his first wife couldn't conceive. And so you got to have children and, you know, take on a second wife. And I didn't even realize there were that many instances of polygamy in the Bible, but there are. So that was interesting. But today, the Christian church, I mean, there are a lot of different denominations, but Christianity in general definitely takes a stance of monogamy in general. So, and that's part of why I don't identify as a Christian anymore. (laughs) It is really interesting considering the past and the Old Testament versus contemporary Christianity. You know, obviously, religion and religious people change over time. And it's interesting to see, especially with the differences between Old Testament and New Testament, how big the disparity is. Definitely. There's a lot of difference in practices and uh, rules, but that's because the New Testament was kind of like the retcon to the Old Testament. You know, they it was like Jesus came and changed everything. And now there are a lot fewer rules, but the rules that exist are, you know, required. At least that's as I understood it being raised as a Christian. But at 18 years old, I walked away from Christianity and chose to explore other paths and pretty soon settled on paganism, which is a really broad term for basically any earth-based religion that is polytheistic. So multiple deities are accepted. Pretty much all deities are accepted as part of paganism. And, I, and that suits me, and it makes sense because polyamory came very soon after, actually roughly around the same time for me. And it makes sense to me that you could love multiple gods or, or work with multiple gods and also love multiple humans. That just makes perfect sense to me. Polyamory is very accepted in most pagan circles. I don't know of any pagans who would be like, polyamory, that's disgusting. You know, I, I know a ton of polypagans, uh, and I'm a polypagan, and pretty much in paganism, it's like very queer friendly usually in most circles and doesn't have an unbalanced set of rules or expectations where like men can have multiple partners, but women cannot or something like that. So I really like the way that polyamory and polygamy is done in polyamory in pagan circles. <laughs> a lot of peas here. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's been my experience in the last 13 or so years of my involvement in the pagan community is that they're very accepting of polyamory. And all the research I did was like, yeah, yeah, we are. (laughs) Just confirmed that for me. Well, that was all great information, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for doing that research. If anybody in our audience wants to hear more about any specific aspect of this, or they have personal experience or personal expertise, we definitely want to hear from you. Please reach out. It helps us out a lot to know what our listeners want to listen to. And we'll be back with another segment. Hey, everyone. It's Kevin, co-host of Less Than 83. I just wanted to let you know that I run a small company called Y'all Cookin'. If you'd be interested in learning how to up your cooking game in a lot of different ways, please check me out at yallcookin.com or yallcookin on Facebook. Thank you. All right, welcome back. Hello. All right, so we wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of sanctity, mostly because we couldn't come up with a better term that we liked better. Yeah. <laughs> about like what we meant by this. So kind of what we're talking about today is the idea of things that you hold very specifically special to a particular relationship or maybe even set of relationships mm-hmm. at the at the exclusion of others. So this could be a specific, well, for monogamous people, it could be sex or romantic relationships. You know, the, you, mm-hmm. those things are kind of sacrosanct to only one person. So that makes sense for that structure. But in polyamorous relationships, it could be I only go to XYZ restaurant with girlfriend Y, or I only get this type of flowers for my wife, or or it could be sex acts. We're going to talk about that a little bit more as well. Yeah. And I think the two we see the most are fluid bonding and the idea of the marital bed. And people don't have to be married to be, you know, have the marital bed as a concept. I'm sure there are other terms for it, but that's the best I can come up with. But the the bed where you share with your nesting partner, yeah, your nesting partner or your primary partner or whomever you're living with, where it's a bed that you share for sleeping in and also exclusively for you and your partner for sex. So why do we have these kinds of excerpts cut out into our relationships at times? Like, does everybody do it or is it something that only some of us do? It depends. Like in many polyamorous relationships and in every relationship, every relationship is structured uniquely. Every relationship has unique details and ideas about sanctity. I think that sanctity is a more common concept enforced in hierarchical structured dynamics where there's a primary, secondary or specifically delineated roles or time spent together in your life. I think the opposite end is definitely more relationship anarchy where people try less to put rules up about sanctity and more negotiate as the relationship goes on. And they focus a lot on lack of ownership and on individual responsibility and personhood. So I think both and the whole spectrum is, of course, viable and doable in relationships as long as you negotiate with your partners. So that's really what it comes down to. (laughs) But it can be a way to mitigate insecurity sometimes or to feel special, even if you don't have a hierarchy. You know, if your favorite color is red and you know that your partner is getting you 
red things because they know that's your favorite color. But what if your metamorph's favorite color is also red? So, you know, that's part of what we're discussing here today. Yeah. And so it can be a little bit more of a impact on either our physical or emotional safety when it comes to things like the marital bed or fluid bonding. Oh, yeah. And so well, let's start off with those concepts. So it's not uncommon in non-monogamous relationships, especially like you were saying, in hierarchical ones where having a specific spot where you and your partner sleep in be off limits for sex for anyone other than you and your partner. Mm -hmm. I have heard that a bunch. Yeah. And that can be a really valid and important thing to hold uh, specific spaces for you to be able to retreat to, to be able to find safety and comfort in knowing that it's yours and yours alone. It can be a personal icky factor where you don't want to have to be in the presence of other people's smells, bodily fluids. Otherwise, even if sheets are changed and that kind of thing. So there's both an emotional, psychological, and physical component to that kind of stuff. Sure. And the times where I would say you might want to investigate how important it is to you, especially if you are poor, if you are somebody of limited means, you're dating another person of limited means, it means that going to a hotel is probably out of the question. It means that going to someone else's house, if your partner is also poor and in a similar circumstance to you, or maybe they live with their parents. And so like being over at their house and being intimate is off the table. Or other partners or roommates even. It just yeah. depends. You, and you don't want to expose yourself to additional risk if you're in the U.S., for example, for being charged with a crime, for being out in a car having sex. Uh, these are things that you should weigh and find out what's important and be able to make space and accommodation for full, fulfilling relationships, while also at the same time preserving things that are important for your emotional and physical well-being. Again, if you're poor and your partner's on a date at your house and it's COVID times and you don't have anywhere else you're, you can or are allowed to be, that's a tough spot to be in. And if your partner wants to connect with somebody sexually, you have to find compromises that work for your relationship to be able to allow them to express the full amounts of their relationship that's practical, as well as be able to find safe space that you can retreat to and be comfortable in. And I've run across this in my relationships before, like my partner didn't have a lot of ability to be out of the house sometimes, and they didn't want me to have sex in the home while they were present. And they weren't dating very many people. So it wasn't like I had a whole lot of opportunities, even though her and I shared separate rooms and had our own beds that were distinctly ours to do what we wanted with. We still shared space in that way. And we had to come up with ways around it. And so we were able to do that in our own way. And for fluid bonding, no matter what we think about, fluid bonding is an additional risk vector for contracting STIs. Kind of like what we've talked about in previous episodes, you're never immune from contracting an STD if you're sexually active with anybody else. But everything that we do is in order to bring ourselves in line with what we feel comfortable with as a risk profile. Mm -hmm. Safer sex. Yeah. And so whether or not you fluid bond with other people is in part a practical concern for you and your partner, but also 
a part of your own healthcare concerns and a part of your risk profile. Absolutely. And fluid bonding is something that polyamorous people tend to wait a little while before they're, you know, everybody's different and everybody's risk profile is different and everyone has different ideas of what their safest sex practices should be. And I'm usually the one good about calling you out on this kind of stuff. I didn't define what I meant by fluid bonding. Even oh, yeah. It's not, even it. though it's a term, <laughs> fluid bonding is having oral, anal, or vaginal sex or any other sort of similar sex act without the use of barriers. Mm -hmm. So obviously the risk factor goes up. And polyamorous people, as we've talked about before, tend to get tested pretty regularly. And me and most of my friends tend to get tested every three to six months, depending on our partners and our risk profile. So, you know, it's just one of those things when you're talking to a, a poly person for really any relationship, you should talk about STI testing and, and barriers and definitely figure out if you're on the same page in that regard. So I think that makes sense as a sort of sanctity thing to be held just for your own health, you know, not to mention your other relationships and partners, but definitely your own health and know your risk factors, know your body and do the research and, you know, but it is definitely a common thing to be, to be held as a sanctity item. So I know you had mentioned before that you had some circumstances where you had similar restrictions in your relationship. Uh, why don't you talk about those for a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've had the idea of sanctity in my relationships in a variety of ways, and my relationships have been structured a variety of different ways over the past 12-ish years, 12, 13 years that I've been poly. So at one point, I engage in a variety of BDSM DS dynamics, dominant submissive throughout my adult life and my entire polyamory journey. And so some acts of BDSM, some types of play were, according to my own negotiations with my partners, were kind of a sanctity action or type of play between just me and a specific partner. And it was different for each partner because, again, every relationship is unique. And I've also been in relationships where like we had a special restaurant that we would go to for like many, many years in a row. And whenever I wanted to bring someone else to that very special place, because it was a great place, <laughs> I would talk to the partner that I had that kind of sanctity set up with and be like, hey, you know, I've been seeing so-and-so for a while. Would you feel okay if I took them to that spot? And they would always say yes, because they understood that I had taken a long time to think about it. And I felt like our relationship was at the point where I could share that kind of special spot with them. And, you know, these were under basically kind of a hierarchy, but very open setup in my relationships. But it was important for me to check in with those partners and respect the, the thing that we had held special to just us until one or both of us wanted to expand that to other people. So we've talked a little bit about where it's, you know, why people do this, where it might be impractical or maybe a bad idea to hold sanctity around certain things and why it could also be valuable. And I think it's important to be able to consider all these things when you are either making something sacrosanct in your relationships, whether the other people that are coming into your relationships understand and know about them. There's a lot of things that maybe we don't even consider when we make these understandings, when we, some of these can be kind of like not really overtly talked about. Sometimes they're one of these polyamorous landmines that we walk over and we didn't realize we're going to be a really bad thing for our partner. It was going to cause a very big reaction for them and 
a lot of times things that they didn't realize were going to bother them, but suddenly do. And the most important thing about all of these, just like many other things in polyamory, is that you'll be able to talk to your partner, you'll be able to bring it up, bring up why it's important, and try to be understanding and compassionate to your partner and whoever else is entering there in your lives. Because those people coming into your lives are people who deserve their wants, needs, and feelings to be validated just as much as you do. Exactly. Definitely. Anything else before you close this out, Elizabeth? I think sanctity should be something that kind of comes from within. You should start by making your own assessments about your own boundaries and what you want to keep sacred or unique to just that dynamic with yourself or with someone else. And yeah, just try to negotiate your way through. Compromise can be a great way to find bonding with your partner as well. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for today for this segment. Uh, please, as always, contact us. We're really in need of support both uh, by sharing this podcast with your friends, as well as if you want to and you're comfortable doing so, financially supporting us on Patreon. So please consider to do that. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. We want to give a quick shout out to our first patron. Uh, they haven't given us consent to say their name, so we just wanted to thank in general. We had one person sign up at the expert communicator level. Patreon is a place where you can financially support this podcast. It does cost us money to be able to have the equipment and server space to be able to host the podcast. So if you want to be a polywog at $5 a month, a compersion captain at $10 a month, or an expert communicator at $30 a month, please feel free to throw us a little bit of money. It would go a long way to be able to help us cover the cost of this podcast and help me compensate our, my co-creators. You can find us on Twitter, through email, or on Reddit. To submit your questions or to recommend topics, please reach out to our contact info in the show notes. This episode was edited by Jackson Menton, music by Anti Lude, and logo design by Carmen Bolding. We're a new podcast, and therefore sharing this with your friends or family members could really help us out. Please share. Sharing is caring.